Thank you for tuning in to Works Cited, a podcast about poems. I am Kevin Gutrera calling in from Boston, Massachusetts, and I am joined by Luke Bauerlein. Hey, Luke. Hey, Kevin. How's it going, man? Yeah, good. And uh, you're calling in from uh, Phoenixville, is that right? Yes, sir. Still over there? Great. Uh, and we are also joined by none other than Luke Stromberg. How you doing, Luke? Good. Yeah. Uh, still calling in from Upper Darby? That's right. Upper uh, Darby. Upper Darby. Uh, great. So, I mean, it, guys, it's so great to be talking to you again. Um, yeah. You know, people who listen to the podcast might not know how long it's been since we <laughs> recorded the last one. Uh, but, yeah, this is, I'm just really excited to uh, be getting together with my friends uh, over Skype and uh, talking about an excellent poem. Uh, before we get into that, we like to uh, do, like, a little bit of ice breaking or whatever and talk about other subjects. And uh, Because this is a conversation. It's not a lecture on poems. It's not... Uh, a craft talk or anything. It's certainly not a poetry workshop, which is uh, the, one of the closest things to hell on earth I've ever been through. Um, <laughs> that That's an exaggeration. I've actually had great workshops. Um, I've had readings like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we all have. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, we I think we were thinking about uh, talking about like other things we've been reading other than, than the poem that's up for discussion. Um, Stromberg, do you want to start with that? Yeah, I... I, I've been reading, uh, you know, it's the summer as we're recording this episode. Uh, I've been reading reading a lot of um, hard-boiled oh, nice. crime novels, mysteries. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff. And um, so, yeah, I've read a, a few recently. Uh, right now, I'm rereading one of my favorite Ross McDonald novels, Lou Archer Mysteries. It's called Black Money. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Really good. I mean, he's, he, he, you know, Chandler is like the quintessential yeah. hard-boiled detective novelist and the great stylist and everything. Yeah. And Dashiell Hammett is like the originator, you know, and yeah. he's, he's amazing too. But like Ross McDonald, in some ways, I don't know, for me, he's not quite as hard-boiled as Chandler. You know, but uh, and he's not as great a pro stylist. I mean, he's very good, but he's not as great a pro stylist as Chandler. I mean, few are. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. But I really like him. There's just something about his novels that are are so human. Yeah. And um, yeah, he's you know they're they're really more about people than uh, than. A lot of the others, so I, I I really like his his novels, and I would highly recommend anybody checking out Ross McDonald novels, uh, uh, mysteries. I'm definitely writing that down right now because, as you know, I like to <laughs> I love hard boiled stuff myself too. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. part of the Trinity, you know. Yeah, I would say it's a tree like uh, Hammett, wow. Chandler, McDonald, and then there are you know there there's. Uh, Robert B. Parker, who is kind of, he's cool. He does like the Spencer novels. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. John D. McDonald, not to be confused with Ross McDonald. <laughs> he's really good. He's the Travis McGee novels, but I, I think it's really Hammett, Chandler, Ross McDonald. They're like the top three. So you're, for some reason, you're reminding me of um, a book I read uh, a couple years ago uh, by Jim Nisbet. I think it's how you say his last name, or Nisbet. Uh, uh, it's called The Damned Don't Die. 
That's a cool title. It's a, yeah, and it's so it's from like the 1980s actually. So, but it's it's a hard boiled like sort of private eye story oh, uh, cool. set in like 1980s San Francisco uh, with like basically in the in the seedy underground. Uh, well, maybe seedy's not is an unfair word. It's seedy to you know squares. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but you know what I mean. And it, it's just um, uh, oh, sounds right up my alley. Yeah, it's a great. Um, it's a great read. It's really short too. Um, I, cool. I love short books because I have a short attention span. So, right. Uh, anyway, uh, hey Bowerline, uh, what have you been reading lately? Yeah, um, there was this uh, just collection of short stories, like great stories from American literature that my dad had kicking around at his house, and uh, I was just revisiting a couple of those. Um, Baldwin has a story called Sonny's Blues. Oh yeah, which wow. Is, wow. and yeah. Uh, and he was. Um, it feels a little autobiographical, even though it's a piece of fiction, because I know he was the oldest in his house growing up, and it's yeah. from the view of an older brother who has, um, a, a, like, a, yeah, a younger brother who's um, really trying to become a great jazz musician and is a piano player, but he knows that his brother's gotten involved in a scene that um, you know has, is full of drugs, and his, mm -hmm. his brother's really struggled with a heroin addiction, and so that's background to sort of this period where his brother's coming back in his life. He's clean again and he, and he's worried about him because he sees him getting back involved in his music. And it really um, finishes in this moment where he, the Baldwin uh, narrator is, is in a club hearing his brother play for the first time in a really long time. And he just, it's some of the most beautiful and insightful writing about music mm. I've, I've ever experienced. And it's, it's a great story that I would, I would recommend. Um, and there's another one in there by Philip Roth that uh, is wildly entertaining called The Conversion of the Jews, which oh, I'm yeah. very irreverent, but um, extreme, extremely funny, where uh, a kid, um, I guess, going who's going to be bar mitzvahed um, is just very asking a lot of uh, difficult questions to the rabbi and, and really just kind of pissing the guy off. And at a certain point, he, put, he breaks the limit and gets like slapped by the rabbi and slapped by his mom. And this leads to like this great fiasco where um, he get at one of his sessions he gets chased up on the roof and uh, locks the door and won't come down and they're like the the rabbi and the students are all kind of begging him to come down and uh, firefighters are called it's great. that's in Goodbye. That's in Goodbye Columbus, right? That is yeah, one yeah. of the stories featured in that. Yeah, as I well. read that. It's yeah. Rock, that's a, yes, yeah. very rough. I yeah, I love the title of it too. It must. It, uh, I'm thinking it comes from the Andrew Marvell poem. Uh, was coy mistress um that's a really famous uh line from that poem I oh mean, until yeah the, you're right yeah i love you till the conversion of the jews which oh <laughs> yeah with, I yeah. That that, that's, oh yeah yeah i'm yeah. sure that's I'm sure that's what he's where he's getting that from oh yeah and um yeah, yeah such a great uh I mean, right there, like, the title of that story already, like, kind of punches you in the gut. Because you're like, oh, there's a lot wrong with this. Yes. You know, and, yeah, uh, yeah, it yeah. was very controversial when it came out. I mean, yeah. like, Roth was, like, really, uh, uh, I mean, a lot of people were upset by him early yeah. on. <laughs> Still yeah. are. Yeah. Well, and really, and then later on, too, that important always complaint yeah. comes out. I mean, he, he pushed some buttons throughout the career. <laughs> wow, yeah. And then he wrote a lot of books about that. <laughs> right, right. Yes, he did. <laughs> I uh, well, I mean, speaking of like, uh, I don't know how controversial Faulkner is, um, but uh, I yesterday as I was um, uh, riding uh, the commuter rail home uh, after work, I decided to pick up um, on my Kindle. You know, I have tons of different things, and I thought, you know, I haven't read a Faulkner story in a long time, and I thought, 
why not Barn Burning, which is an anthology mainstay, oh, right? Yeah. And and I don't think I've read that story since college, so we're talking well a long, pretty long time. Um, and my God, I was just uh, uh, really, um, you know, talk about a punch to the gut, you know, and yeah. and kind of and the, the idea of the of the young boy, uh, you know, standing up to his father when he knows his father's doing wrong, uh, and it's like, and and yet he still loves his father, you know, and. And I think that that's, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I didn't have a sharecropper father who would burn uh, barns down uh, when growing up. But there is this just sort of feeling in the South of being a, a young guy and, you know, having to be a man and all this kind of crap. That's just sort yeah. of that I can resonate with. And I, I think it's also, I mean, it surpasses it. It goes beyond the regionalism, um, which I think is why Faulkner is so, uh, well, you know, widely read. Um but at the same time, it, it's of a certain flavor of that place in um, that time. Yeah. And, and really, we haven't, you know, gotten past the, the, the difference between, you know, the time Faulkner was writing in and now in the South. Um, uh, in some ways, I, I think it, not much has changed, you know. Um, but anyway. Wow. Uh, it's yeah. funny that you've got, you're reading Faulkner and, and uh, Barreline was reading Baldwin. I mean, mm -hmm. I was just thinking like... Uh, you know what am I going to read next? And I was like, well, I have Go Tell It on the Mountain. Yeah. Oh, which yeah. I haven't I've read that since high school. Man. Yeah. yeah, I've never read it, so I have that, and I was like, oh, maybe I'll read that. And but then I was also thinking, like, I, you know, uh, I, I could read a Faulkner novel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm thinking of uh, re. Yeah, I'm thinking of revisiting uh, Light in August because I that I love oh that yeah, novel. that's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. Um, well, and and actually, I I love that we're talking about revisiting things a, a lot poets always use the word revisit uh on facebook you know it's like oh i'm revisiting this poem by so in other yeah. words uh, don't worry i've read this before yeah i'm not <laughs> i'm not a philistine right but i'm rereading it you know yeah. um so anyway uh but the poem we're going to discuss uh today uh is one when you brought it up you said the band moth i'm like yes we definitely should discuss this poem uh, because it, like Barn Burning, it's one that I don't think I've read in, in several years at least. Um, but it's one of those poems I must have read a hundred times back in the day. Uh, and it's been, it was such a treat for me to revisit it. Um, I know it has been for you two as well. So, Mr. Bowerline, why don't you, uh, why don't you read the poem for us and we'll get started. Sounds good. The Man Moth. Here, above... Cracks in the buildings are filled with battered moonlight. The whole shadow of man is only as big as his hat. It lies at his feet like a circle for a doll to stand on. And he makes an inverted pin, the point magnetized to the moon. He does not see the moon. He observes only her vast properties, feeling the queer light on his hands, neither warm nor cold, of a temperature impossible to record in thermometers. But when the man-moth pays his rare although occasional, visits to the surface, the moon looks rather different to him. He emerges from an opening under the edge of one of the sidewalks and nervously begins to scale the faces of the buildings. He thinks the moon is a small hole at the top of the sky, proving the sky quite useless for protection. He trembles, but must investigate as high as he can climb. Up the facades, his shadow dragging like a photographer's cloth behind him, he climbs fearfully, thinking that this time he will manage to push his small head through that round opening and be forced through as from a tube in black scrolls on the light. 
Man, standing below him, has no such illusions. But what the man-moth fears most, he must do, although he fails, of course, and falls back scared, but quite unhurt. Then he returns to the pale subways of cement he calls home. He flits, he flutters, and cannot abort the silent trains fast enough to suit him. The doors close swiftly. The man-moth always seats himself facing the wrong way, and the train starts at once its full, terrible speed, without a shift in gears or a gradation of any sort. He cannot tell the rate at which he travels backwards. Each night he must be carried through artificial tunnels and dream recurrent dreams. Just as the ties recur beneath his train, these underlie his rushing brain. He does not dare look out the window. For the third rail, the unbroken draft of poison runs there beside him. He regards it as a disease he has inherited the susceptibility to. He has to keep his hands in his pockets, as others must wear mufflers. If you catch him, hold up a flashlight to his eye. It's all dark pupil, an entire night itself, whose haired horizon tightens as he stares back and closes up the eye. Then from the lids, one tear, his only possession, like the bee's sting, slips. Slyly, he palms it, and if you're not paying attention, you'll swallow it. However, if you watch, he'll hand it over, cool as from underground springs, and pure enough to drink. Thank you, Mr. Bowerline, for a great reading. Um, that's just beautiful. Uh, you know, so I'll, I'll get us started on the, uh, on the conversation. Um, I, uh, first, I, I guess I'll, let's do like a little biographical uh, sketch of, uh, of Elizabeth Bishop, uh, born in 1911 in Worcester, Massachusetts. I think that's how the locals say it, Worcester. Um, she, uh, she was a poet who was, um, not very well known, I think, in her lifetime. Uh, although, having said that, uh, you know, she got the Pulitzer Prize in 1956 for poems, North and South, slash A Cold Spring. Uh, and then her Complete Poems won the National Book Award in 1970, um, so she was somewhat known, but, you know, as we, as we all know that, I mean, these prizes, um, they mean something when they're awarded, but they definitely do not guarantee lasting fame yeah. and recognition. Uh, but the excellence of her work has guaranteed that for her. And after her death, uh, her reputation has soared. Uh, and uh, I think other things that are uh, interesting to note, um, she had a, uh, a very close uh, friendship with uh, Robert Lowell. Uh, there's an incredibly um, uh, beautiful uh, book of their letters that's, that was published, uh, I want to say, in 2008 or so, um, maybe a little bit later than that, called Words and Air, uh, Correspondence of uh, Bishop and Lowell. And so she's... And, and their, I think their work really complements each other. In fact, when I was... Uh, in uh, graduate school, um, you know, I took a seminar on uh, Lowell and Bishop, uh, you know, studying oh, their wow. poetry together. Yeah, it was really um, quite oh. something. And uh, she lived in Brazil for a while. That's something. In fact, when I told people, poet friends, that I was moving to Brazil uh, years <laughs> ago, they said, oh, well, have you read Bishop? 
And uh, <laughs> for for the two years I lived in Brazil, I rarely read Bishop <laughs> because people kept telling me to. Uh, but thankfully, I came to my senses and, and really uh, dove into her work uh, later on and, and just love it. Um, and, and I just want to say something briefly about this poem in particular to kind of get us started. Um, I think what surprised me was, um, you know, rereading it was when you get to the end, uh, the, you know, it, it, it's really, the whole poem is kind of a, it's very whimsical, it's uh, surreal, uh, very playful in its subject matter. Uh, you know, mm. I mean, like just in, envisioning this sort of mythical creature. Um, and yet the creature feels very, I think the loneliness of the creature makes it yeah. very relatable and human. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, like I, I ride trains uh, going in the, you know, facing the wrong direction quite often, you know. Um, Me too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and you know, and then when we get to that uh, that that single tear, his only possession, like mm. the bee's sting. I mean, it's just there's so much in packed into those uh, those little phrases. Um, and and I think that what's so surprising is that you at the beginning of the poem you don't really expect that because it's it's very uh, it's very cold in its narration. The 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 amount of uh, work that she puts into describing the shadow of of men walking on the street as seen from you know the great heights of the of the towers. You know the whole shadow yeah. of man is yeah. only as big as his hat. It lies at his feet like a circle for a doll to stand on. Um, and and that's something that's a hallmark of her work. Uh, that ability to be very painterly in her descriptions of things. Like she's an incredibly yeah, yeah incredibly yeah. visual poet. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of evoke all of these things and see what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was going to say that kind of uh, you went exactly where I was going to go to, Kevin, uh, where one of the things that I admire about Bishop as a poet in general, you know, is um, uh, her eye for images, her, her knack for description, right? She has that really, painterly is a good word for it, but this very precise way of describing things. Her images are really always memorable, and um, her uh, her similes and metaphors are always uh, memorable. Um, and I think that's something that um, is one of her strengths as a poet, and you certainly see it in this poem. Yeah, and you know, like I first stumbled upon this actually reading, um, I think, an interview that Lowell was giving. And, and he, he just mentioned this poem as sort of, uh, he admired its ability to create an entire world. And, yeah. and you really do, and there are, you don't always get that in a poem, especially in a lyric that's, um, that's still not that long. You know, I mean, I really feel uh, connected to the scene and I, I feel like she evokes, yeah, she evokes this like new character, almost like she's created like this kind of new superhero, noirish, yeah. <laughs> you know, mis mysterious figure uh, yeah, that, and I, that didn't exist before. Yeah. yeah, and and Kevin mentioned its inventiveness and it's like that it was kind of whimsical, right? Yeah, and it, yeah, it and it is, you know, it, it's it's sort of uncharacteristically surreal. I yeah. think that's fair to say. Uh, mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one thing that we probably definitely should mention is that it was inspired by uh, a newspaper misprint. Right. right. Yep. Where they meant to write in the newspaper, she's you know they meant to write mammoth. But they wrote man moth. Yeah. You know? And then she just kind of took off from that yep. mystery. And yeah, and like that's why it's kind of like whimsical. Yeah. 
Yep. But like not like whimsical, whimsical, because as you said too, it's like an intense kind of lonely thing. Yeah. Right? But it's inspired by that misprint. Yeah. Yeah, and I this comes from her first book, right? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, was uh, think... what was the title of that again? Um it her first book is uh North and South. I think North so. Yeah, I'm just working. Oh yeah, North, North and South, yeah. North and South, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 and I think I think I was reading that she at the time of its its writing she was living in New York, um, for, for right. like the, for the first time. Yeah, and and I feel like the sense that I get, um, like from the poem, right, is that the yeah. man moth is, is of the world or is like of the world but not part of this world, and I just can imagine her um, also feeling kind of overwhelmed and sort of like this observer, right, that is that is in in a world but is not quite of it, you know. Yeah, and then, so maybe that's kind of that human element that comes through in it. Like I think many of us have felt that way before. But like yeah. this, this kind of and be, being so drawn into it, but also like it's o being overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, on online there's actually like a little um, excerpt from um, this. This poem was included in an anthology, and I think I remember mm -hmm. seeing this anthology years ago called Poet's Choice. Oh yeah, where I think. Um, it used to be at the Poetry House at Westchester, yeah. I know that, yeah. where, like, poets, like, pick their personal favorite poem. I think that's what it is, mm -hmm. right? And then they, like, say a little something about it. And uh, on the um, Modern American Poetry website from the uh, University of Illinois, um, which is a great uh, resource, uh, there's a little excerpt from that. Uh, you know, this, she, mm -hmm. she writing about it in 1962. And she wrote, um, I've forgotten what it was that was supposed to be mammoth, like in the newspaper article. Mm -hmm. But the misprint seemed meant for me. An oracle <laughs> spoke from the page yeah. of the New York Times, kindly explaining New York City to me, <laughs> at least for a moment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, One is yeah, offered beautiful. such oracular statements all the time, but often misses them. Gets yeah. lazy about writing them out in detail, or the meeting refuses to stay put. Yeah. This poem seems to have stayed put fairly well, but as Thomas Fatzwaller used to say, "One never knows." Do one. <laughs> <laughs> I've written. You know, it's funny that quote. Yeah, that I've. I think I've read that before. Um, yeah. Years yeah. And years ago. It's also interesting to note too that this this would have been you know coming from her first book like it does. It would have been. Um, uh, at the time of her career when she was uh, very heavily influenced by Marianne Moore. You know, they had a yeah. friendship going on. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, and like all of that careful accumulation of detail and, you know, all of those precise words, mm. one after the other, that's, uh, that's a hallmark of, uh, of Moore's style, um, that, that Bishop really made her own. <laughs> and, and that this kind of like sort of whimsicality that you were talking about, too, mm -hmm. I think also like that yeah. kind of um to use like a an academic buzzword intertextuality yeah you know where um she's like responding to something like yeah. a misprint or a line in a in a magazine or yeah. whatever and sort of riffing on that or using it i mean that's something that Moore does too right yeah yeah what does the moon represent in this poem like what is its significance because it kind of starts off with this sort of um, moon imagery. Here, above, cracks in the buildings are filled with battered moonlight. Yeah, and I well, and I love that uh, 
that that battered quality of yeah. the moonlight. Because what I think what it's what it's telling us is that the the stones and the um, and the bricks of the buildings are giving the moonlight their own quality of batteredness. Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah, no, it yeah, does. It does. Uh, yeah, and it's. Uh, I, I just love that. Um, uh, and it, it reminds me of a line in a um, in a Robert Lowell poem when he's talking about uh, his childhood in Boston and that the balls, you know, would they would throw a baseball or something, and the they would it would uh, sort of float for a moment in the bricky air, you know, as if like the the, yeah. the, the there's like a brickiness of the buildings in Boston, and and it it's so bricky that it fills the air, you know, and. Um, I, I think that this is a similar magic. Uh, that, that's my word for this kind of wordplay. I think it's just it to me. It feels very magical. Um, so the, like the battered buildings making the moonlight batter. Yeah, yeah. There's you know just it's like sort of the like bricks magic. make the air pretty. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, but I, going going into like what what the moon represents. I mean, I, I also find it very striking that um, the the man on the street is uh, is magnetized to the moon so to speak. Yeah. Um, and so for, for the common man, it's something that draws us in, but then the, the moth, the, the man moth does not see it. Um, only her vast properties. Um, I, so and, I was thinking that that was like the man on the street doesn't see the moon. Uh, yeah. It would be like a contradiction. That's yeah, true. because we're resolving yeah, if we can do it. That, yeah, yeah, because yeah. the man moth is like attracted to, oh, that's right. And like scales the buildings to get yep. to it. Right. So, yeah. but that, but that's an important kind of thing to, to yeah. mention is because there's a a sort of set it up as like a dichotomy where there's the man, and then there's the, the man the moth. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, and I think Bowerline started to say something about how the man moth is like this outsider or whatever, right? Yes, yes, like yes. this other figure, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. one thing that happens early on by like setting up in the poem she makes that distinction there's the man right the mm -hmm. shadow or yeah. the shadow of man capital m yeah right is only as big as his hat it lies at his feet like a circle for a doll to stand on and he's magnetized by the moon but doesn't see it and and doesn't right. really understand it but Got yet it. in the second stanza we get the man moth and the moon looks different to him right yeah right and he's yeah. somehow attracted, so he so he's aware of the moon in a way that man yeah. is, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's kind good, yeah. of contributing to his sense, like this, this kind of feeling that he's an outs, like he's different. Yeah, yeah, but right? and, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting though because she says, you know, of the man moth, he thinks the moon is a small hole at the top of the sky. Um, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's like you know, the man moth cannot see it from the literal point of view that uh, that the man on the street might see it in if he did see the moon, you know. But yet, somehow, seeing it in that literal sense, there's there's something that's missing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. For me, the moon seems to me that it represents in this poem a special quality of the world, mm -hmm. or like a a, a higher truth a transcendent truth or something mm -hmm. that people are affected by. They're magnetized by it. You know, yeah. they could see its vast properties. They could feel uh, the light on their hands, but they don't really think about it or they're not really aware of it. They don't understand it. 
But the man moth is attracted to it in a different way. Yeah. It's setting up the man moth as a kind of uh, a kind of seeker or a kind of someone yeah. who's aware of like a, a transcendent sort of truth or a meaning that's more than the life on the ground. Yeah. And they're trying to reach that meaning like it's a hole in the sky and they wanna they wanna get through it. And he he could never really find that meaning, but he's always striving for it. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. He's aware in a way that these other people aren't. And that makes him different. Partly of what I'm getting too is like um maybe it's partly just like the world of man on the ground too, right? It's the moon is obscured by the buildings, right? And with their their the, that man is is stuck in just sort of like the world as 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 he's experiencing it on on the ground and doesn't have to be concerned that like the sky is going to fall right but yeah. where like the man moth has this totally like for the man moth it's he can't trust that like yeah. for him it's like the sky has a hole in it and it could you could and is attracted to being sucked almost into it like yeah, yeah. there's like this very romantic yearning quality yeah. in the man moth uh, oh, that, that is not, that's not shared you know yeah but yet, in the third stanza, she also writes, man standing below him, I, the man moth, mm -hmm. has no such illusions. Yeah. Right. Right? right. So it's like, it's, it's like he's believing in something that, that, like, I mean, we as a readership and she as a writer has to acknowledge isn't real, you know? Or, like, it's like he's operating in a different reality. Yeah. But what the man moth fears most, he must do. Mm -hmm. Although yeah. he fails, of course, yeah. and he falls back scared, but quite unhurt. But quite unhurt. It, well, it, uh, I mean, that feels like, um, you know, an Ars Poetica line. Mm. <laughs> you know, it feels like, you know, every time you go down to write <laughs> a poem, you, you fear it the most. Uh, we all fear the blank page. And we always fail, uh, per Samuel Beckett's, uh, you know, line, fail better. Um, yeah. But we fall back scared and quite unhurt and go back to it again, right? Um, yeah, and yeah, and it's just—it's sort of like a definition of actual courage, right? It's like yeah. acting, acting in the face of fear. It's not being unafraid. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, which sort of got that, that kind of superhero quality, I think, that the man moth has. Yeah, it's like this this mission. I don't know. He's called. He's called to the mission, even if uh, the mission isn't real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's real to him. It's real yeah. to him. Yeah, it doesn't the fact that he's um, this lonely figure yeah. who's like different than other people mm -hmm. too yep. Yep. um and then there's that last stanza that kevin uh called attention to earlier from his eye and there's this really beautiful description of the eye that maybe mm -hmm. we can come back to but yeah. then from the lids one tear his only possession mm -hmm. like the bee sting slips slyly he palms it and if you're not paying attention he'll swallow it However, if you watch, he'll hand it over cool as from underground springs and pure enough to drink. I mean, that tear in some ways is like the product of his unique sensibility, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's a kind of interior quality to it. But mm. if you watch, you know, sometimes he'll hand it over and yeah. he'll give it to you, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it's pure enough to drink. It's like somehow nurturing or something, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like this connection now that you could have with this special yeah. sort of person, right? Yeah. It makes me think of like the man moth, maybe, 
I mean, you said Ars Poetica. He's a poet, maybe? Yeah. An artist, in a sense? Yeah. He's that kind of figure, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that tear is like the product of his, of his art in some ways. You know, is, is, you know like that's yeah. his art. Does yeah. that make sense? It, it does make sense. It reminds me of uh, The Albatross by Baudelaire. I um, was just going to say that. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, uh, you know, the, the I love that sort of uh, righteous indignation of uh, of that poem and the, you know, the 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 image of the poet dragging the wings uh, behind him as he's forced to walk on the ground. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. But also, it reminds me of Don Quixote. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This idea mm -hmm. that oh, yeah. it's like man that's not that doesn't have the illusion. Right, mm -hmm. the yeah. man moth is full of illusions. Yeah. He's delusional, right? Right, right? Yeah. but yet somehow heroic, and we admire yeah. Yeah. that yeah. about him. It exactly. makes him something special, right? Yeah. Where, and I think that's the, you know, at least when I read it years ago, I mean, that's kind of how I ended up feeling about Don Quixote. That he's like a fool in some ways, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of no, like a holy no, fool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, and you know, tell me if you guys don't feel this because I, I mean, I, I do get the sense that the uh, the tear itself has a sort of restorative quality. But knowing that it's the man moth's only possession, it mm. almost seems like there's this cruelty. Like, who would do that? Like, why yeah. would you then want to almost if like, if he's going to be compelled to give this up to you? What makes you worthy of watching him do that? And why yeah. take it away? And what's the impact of that on the? on the man moth. Like, I don't quite understand that. Like there's something mysterious happening in that transfer, but it, it I don't know. I almost imagine like a cop holding it up, you know, like shining yeah. a flashlight. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah because it is know? like that. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. If you yeah. catch him, right. right? Yeah. I mean, that's an, why, you know, why? Yeah. 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 And hold, hold up a flashlight to his eye. Which, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's cruel. It's cruel. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And if it does feel like from... you said a, a cop and he, ha yeah. he does, he has to kind of be, compelled to give it over like if yeah. you're not like he'll palm it and swallow it so you can't get to it yeah right mm -hmm. but if you get it if you force it from him and and you know that that's part of what makes me i mean you know i i read other people's take on this i never really saw like a queer reading of it but i mean the moonlight itself is described as queer which may not mm -hmm. have had quite the same connotation yeah that we'd bring to it today but i know that uh bishop would have been even, I'm not sure if she was having any relationships at that at that time in New York, but I'm sure in the artist community that she was discovering, she would have found people that were uh, that were being made other in the yeah. society. Yeah, you yeah, know? absolutely. And and I think that and I do think that the the man moth takes on that quality too. Oh yeah. And there's sort of this um, that interrogation does seem like violent and cruel, right? As like yeah. what could happen if you're exposed to man, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it, it, there's something to connect that you can connect to this figure in any way if you've ever felt like yes, yeah, an yeah. outsider or yeah, different right. than everybody. It's, about the it's definitely about the outsiders, however you want to interpret that. And, and that could be yeah. an artist. Yes. I mean, it could be, uh, you know, if you're queer, right? Um, you know, it's it's anything that kind of sets you apart. And it's it's interesting that so many times those things, two things go together, right? I think kind of being an outsider sort of kind of is is a part of being an artist. Like you yeah. can't really be 
be an artist unless you're some kind of outsider, right? Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. You have, I think it's, so. it's necessary it's to the observer, right? Like we were talking about, you know, like you're in the world, but you're not of the world or something. That yeah. that and that distance is is part of it of being able yeah. to report on it. Yeah. Yeah. Or or just having a different perspective, like having something yeah. interesting to 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 give. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. If if you're gonna be something more than an, an artisan, you, you right. have to have a, a vision. You know, I think this is what we talk about when we talk about an artist vision. Uh, and I think distance is a great word. You know, there there is a need for um, you know distance so you can gain a perspective on on things. So yeah. I think that they're um, like kind of halfway through this poem, right? It's six hmm. stanzas, mm -hmm. and it's kind of interesting. They all, they begin with each stanza begins with like this. A brief, like, because the lines are really long. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 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 I'd say this is free verse. I mean, I couldn't really scan it in any regular. Yeah, I think way. that's fair. I think that's. Yeah. Fair. But um, each each stanza begins with this abbreviated line that's kind of indented. So there's that sort of form that's kind of happening, and I don't know if if there's much to say about that. But there's a. Um, Halfway through, it's six stanzas. Halfway through, I think there's a turn. There is. First, there's this, yeah. yeah. First, there's this description of the the kind of moon and, yeah. and, the, and the man versus the man moth and, and scaling the facades of the building to see the moon. And then there's this kind of idea when the man moth returns, like, underground. Yeah. yeah She's yeah. sort of creating, like, this kind of weird sense of, like, if you're a part of an, a modern urban environment, you take like the subway and everything mm -hmm. like you're these underground dwellers. Right. Yep. And he returns underground. And then from that point on, which is like starting with the fourth stanza, I think the poem takes this sort of turn there. And there's this description of his experience on the subway. Yeah. It's almost like, um, it, it's almost like there's something that, um, the effort, right? Because it's rare. He only occasionally comes out oh, to yeah. Yeah. experience the property to, to get and get get into the moon. You know, it's like it takes a lot out of him. Yeah. And I think and I think there's something about sort of ascending to these heights and um and almost like a it, it's um, getting too much, getting too close, right? Almost mm -hmm. maybe like an Icarus kind of thing, right? Except in in this case, it's not it's not leading to his death, but it's it's like he's zapped a little bit and. Uh, has to return to to the depths to like the ab to absolute darkness um, to maybe this this train that isn't even um, making making him feel comfortable. It, it happens at a terrible s speed, um, and, and he's traveling backwards on it. So I, I feel like there's almost where he mostly resides um, to almost restore himself for these kind of like really flights of fancy or whatever you want to call them. Um, I don't know. Is is not even a comforting place for him. No, he's no, no. He's hiding. He's hiding. You know, he's going back. So it's like he he has to he has to restore himself in a place where he needs to hide, and then um, still is compelled right, yeah. against fear to come out and reveal himself occasionally. Yeah, you know, and, and, yeah. risking he's risking being caught on the subway. Yeah. Right. That's where he's going to most interact with man. Yeah, and that's interesting too that he's traveling backwards. It's like yeah, yeah. he's. Not only is he like retreating, but it's like he's being taken. It's almost like there's this implication that he's he's get, he's losing even more ground, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, he's he's being like he cannot progress. Yeah, there's the idea that he's trapped and that he's a failure, but he's also he's traveling backwards. 
the man moth always seats himself facing the wrong way and the train starts at once at its full terrible speed. Again, like this kind of idea that he doesn't have control of it. He's being yeah. taken away. And because he's seeing backwards and it's like this sudden kind of pulling away, he just has to sit there kind of passively and watch it all kind of recede from him, right? There's a kind of... Um, a sort of poignancy to that. And I could, I could get this kind of sense where he's like, ah, I was close and now I'm actually traveling backwards. Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a great reading. And I, I think also that, you know, he really has no home. He has pale subways of cement. He calls right. his home. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's interesting. Point. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. And the, uh, and his, the, the only thing, his dreams, um, you would think that the man moth, uh, being kind of a figure of dream in a way, would have uh, some very great dreams that, that sort of uplift them. But I, I don't get that. I get, you know, they're all always recurrent dreams, and uh, they're just like the ties that recur beneath his train. Uh, you know, they're just something that's sort of like a structure that is built in his brain that he that he rushes over. Um, so like he can't even get any release in his dreams, you know, and that's, I guess that's what makes the, the journey to the surface and then scaling the buildings, um, that much more necessary for him because, uh, you know, unlike, you know, the man who doesn't even know about them, doesn't really see the moon, um, you know, he has no escape, you know, in his own mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, and it is interesting, this kind of, this retreat is kind of into his own mind in some ways, right? Mm. It, it's a lonely, it's a very lonely image, I image, right? And I, I didn't notice this at first. I don't think I've ever noticed this before about the poem. But something about when Bowerline was reading it, it really picked I picked up on it. I was like, huh, how about that? Um, and it kind of ties in a little with what you're saying, I think, Kevin. Where in that, um, what is it, the, uh, the penultimate stanza, each night he must be carried through artificial tunnels and dream recurrent dreams, just as the ties recur beneath his train. These underline his rushing brain. Do you hear that? Like the way train kind of rhymes oh totally like yes yeah kind of I, no i when i was going through it and i think maybe i did emphasize that but i felt that when i was re, when i revisited the poem earlier yeah yeah, like yeah. and a very strong music in that yeah a strong music and really chiming it together right yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. I, I just want and again what you were saying it's like kind of like he's thinking of his dreams which are the activity of his brain right mm -hmm. and it, it's kind of related to the to, to the to the um the ties that recur beneath yeah. the train, like these yeah. recurring dreams. Yeah, and it's yeah. like brain, train, brain, train. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like, I don't know, it really works. Yeah, you can hear the rattling of the train, yeah. And it kind of helps kind of connect those two things and bring in this like obsessive sort of recurrent quality yeah. where he's going over these things again and again. Yeah, there's there's another part where uh, there's there's some really good mimesis going on. I think that's how you pronounce the word mimesis. Sounds like mimosas. Um, <laughs> uh, in the in the stanza above that, then he returns to the pale subways of seamen he calls his home. He flits, he flutters, and cannot get aboard the silent trains fast enough to suit him. Uh, so he flits, comma line break, 
So he flits is sort of like orphaned out there. He flits. Huh. And then he flutters, comma, so that's like a little unit. And and cannot get aboard the silent trains, line break, fast enough to suit him. So there's all this delay going on before we get to fast enough to suit him. So there's already, like in this sentence, there are all these delays of him getting huh. on the train. Yeah. You know, it's sort of mimicked in the in the way the syntax is structured. And then he flits, he flutters. Um, uh, there's something in the movement of that, uh, of of those the, that fra- or those two phrases put together like that, uh, that feels like flitting and fluttering of a moth. Totally oh, agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. it's kind of like I don't know. They're so they 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 both begin with you know it's it's alliterative, mm-hmm. but it's almost like flit flutter, not too much difference. So it feels yeah. like this kind. I don't know if that makes sense, but it it kind of feels like this flapping kind of like yeah. stuttery kind of thing. I don't, and as you said, like the kind of how it's broken up and yeah. Yeah. But how about this too, that it's like this idea again, like it comes up twice. He must, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. This sort of idea oh. again of being like compelled, right. Yeah. Um, in the third stanza, but what the man most moth fears most he, he must, must do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Each night, and then in the penultimate stage, each night he must be carried through artificial tunnels, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, again, this thing, sort of like the end where he's like compelled to give up this tear, his only possession, right? Yeah. yeah. That he's like compelled to this thing, mm-hmm. he has to. And the train, right? of course, it, it seems as though it's compelled of its own. You know, it, it's all, it's like a machine, so it's just doing what it has to do as a machine. You know, uh, I don't know if yeah. that was <laughs> yeah. maybe that's a little bit far fetched, but uh, but no, and and I think that oh, that's the the must. No, it's been it's being operated. You know, yeah. like it's like right. the train is being controlled by somebody else. Right. You know. Yeah. By some outside force, like we can't, you know, it's, it's crazy when you're on the subway. I mean, very rarely do you see the driver, yeah, right? right? They're in this well, little like compartment, yeah. you know, once in a while you see them like stick their head out. Yeah. I have the one subway driver um, that I get sometimes in the way home. I always know it's her only because she likes to talk on the loudspeaker. Yeah. You know, she'll be like, let the damn people in before you board. <laughs> like, it's like, I'm like, oh, it's that lady. You would love Boston, <laughs> man, because they all yell and, uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, most of the time you don't hear them say anything. And it's like the train oh, is no. being, you know, like, it's like you can't see the driver, you know? Yeah. You don't know what's operating this train. Well, Case so it, Jones high on cocaine. You don't know. <laughs> Maybe they are. Yeah. But you know, like I think that's the key thing that uh, that is making the man moth another. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's that it's that there's this irrational. There are these irrational yeah. things that he's compelled to do and endure, and it's part of what makes um, the man moth so courageous yeah. and such. Maybe what engenders us sympathy in him too, which then of course makes he gives him this like human aspect yeah. right yeah, it, like yeah. comes, it comes back around but uh, it's also the thing that's convincing me too the most that this is sort of a uh, like in ours poetic or, or about an artist yeah. right i mean we can we can look at it more broadly than that but this idea that um artists are compelled to the irrational and that yeah. is actually that reveals something about what makes us human is feels very right to me and, yeah. and that yeah. that whole idea too that the moon is often associated with mm-hmm 
the, 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 it's kind of contrasted with the sun. Like the moon is the mysterious, irrational yeah. force. Yes, right? It's yeah. the feminine, yeah. right? And the moon is the, or the sun rather, is the masculine, more rational force. Like that goes deep back into a, like our primitive mm. beginnings, I think. You mm. know? Um, it, and, and for some reason, that's been gendered too, right? So, I mean, this kind of maybe, you know, attraction to the moon, it's an attraction to the, to the mysterious, to the irrational, oh, yeah. also to the feminine, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I don't know, but, you yeah, know, that's no. there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I also, I think that, uh, like, the, the verb must, the ideas that we've pulled out of it about it being, like, an irrational compulsion that's what feels sort of insect-like about this character. He must do it. So he's, he's operating purely on this inner drive, this compulsion, which we will often associate with, you know, animal drives, you know, the part of us that's, that's uh, you know, irrational and just focused on uh, carrying out uh, what our instincts tell us. Um, but there's something more to the creature because there is this, it is a man moth. And I, I don't know where, quite where I'm going with this, but, but I do, you know, when we started zeroing in on the, the verb must, you know, I, I felt uh, like this was the, the moth coming through the man, if that makes any sense. But yet at the same yeah. time, yeah, it yeah, makes you yeah. think about how, well, we all have a bit of that moth in us because there are things that we just sort of, we feel like we must do. Um, and I think for the three of us, it's, I mean, we're all, you know, we all have the poetry bug, you know, like that's always what's kind of pulling us out into the moonlight. Uh, but I think for other people, they have similar drives, but they're just directed differently. Does yeah. Mean, I mean, yeah. think of, I mean, the, there's the cliche, like a moth to the flame, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I mean, you've all observed this, like, you mm -hmm. know, bugs in general, moths too, they're yeah. like attracted to a light. I, I have this thing like where it's like I have like a um a floor lamp in my living room, you know, and like mm -hmm. it's it's kind of it, it you know it's like a bowl on the top, right? And there's a light there, and I've often observed like when I'll get a moth in my house, it's inevitable almost that it flies for that lamp, yeah. and then it tries to get down as close as it can to the bowl, and it burns to sucker up. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll see like a wisp of smoke come up, and you're like, "Well, that's the end of that moth." And then yeah. the snake, whatever. <laughs> but like, it's crazy. They're they're compelled to this light. Now I don't know why that is. Some some someone could probably talk oh, yeah. like more yeah. knowledgeable about insect behavior or whatever. Why they're compelled to light? I'm sure but they, they yeah, are, there are articles like, about it. <laughs> you know, like there's the like harmless sort of light that it could be attracted to yeah. but then there's like a flame or like a bulb that's so hot it burns up this little bug with its papery wings right yeah, yeah. I, it, it's so it's a it, it must do it even though it's compelled to its own destruction yeah. like when you when you're compelled to do something that you know that is dangerous for you that can harm you even that could, like in this case, really humiliate him. He falls, he's scared, you know, but he's, yeah. he's, he's basically unhurt. It's just like a failure and a humiliation, right? Yeah. But he's still compelled again and again to do it. Um, but then, 
And just let me piggyback off that real quick, because I feel like that's juxtaposed with his experience on the train. And maybe this is more the man part of the man moth coming out yeah. where he's like aware of the third rail as a yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. So he's yeah. I mean, it's worth, I think, reading those lines. He does not yeah. dare look out the window for the third rail. The unbroken draft of poison runs there beside him. He regards it as a disease he has inherited the susceptibility <laughs> to. He has to keep his hands in his pockets as others must wear mufflers. Does that, does that imply he might reach out and touch it or something? Like he knows that he's attracted to it? Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, or, yeah, maybe that's, I, or maybe that's unrelated exactly to the third rail. But. He has to keep his hand into his in his pockets as others yeah. must wear mufflers. I mean, that's a very strange line. Yeah. But yeah, well, we, yeah, if you wear, you're wearing mufflers, right. To, um, yeah, I don't know. To, oh, to, to maybe keep your hands protected and keep them warm. Yeah. Yeah. Keep your, keep your hands from cracking in the cold probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And for him, it's, but, yeah, yeah, but he has to keep his hands in pocket to keep away from touching the, the, uh, the, 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 yeah, but yeah, he feels like aware of it in a way obsessed by it he doesn't dare look at it you know and he has this inborn susceptibility to it i mean that's a real image of temptation yeah absolutely yeah. you know addiction you know like that there, you know there are some people that that just certain forms of addiction run in their family i mean it yeah. certainly calls that yeah, as we were talking through all this, I kept thinking, well, this is this could also be like a poem about a junkie, almost, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, That's interesting. Well, no, I, yeah. think, I, I think that reading is is uh, supported. And and I think that yeah, and, like an underground figure on the subway, and then yeah. it's almost at the end they're held up like a cop. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's like, you know. Cough yeah. it up. No, <laughs> right. I know you've got this thing hidden somewhere that's like yeah. precious to him. <laughs> right. but it's a kind of Barrows-esque. Yeah. I never, I didn't pick up on that, but oh yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, because I, I think that like uh, the thing that's so compelling about stories about uh, junkies uh, is that um, uh, there's something so primal and human about an addiction like that, about, um, you know, something that you, that get, brings you like the most, I don't know. It, it creates a meaning in your life and a, and a, a purpose and a drive, and and it's it's an incredible pleasure, and yet it's also destroying your life at the same time. And like that that line between you know goodness and danger and destruction, you know, um, I, I think it's it's elemental. You know, I, I think that the that really addiction is is kind of a um, a concentration of the human condition. Yeah, you know, it's like it's taking the human condition and like and and making like this this acid out of it that that's corrosive. I don't know yeah. if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. but uh, and so yeah, that, that's yeah. where yeah, that's where I see this poem. It's kind of in that same sort of uh, orbit, you know. Um, and it kind yeah. of makes you an other too. I mean, not yeah. only oh, because yeah. you're like an outcast mm -hmm. from society because you're doing this thing that's sort of illegal. That, yeah. That's not sort of yeah. illegal. That is illegal. Oh, yeah. But also, it's like you're hip. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? You're like aware. You're tuned in. You're you're mm. you're on. You're you're like uh, someone who 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 flirts with this kind of transcendent sort of thing, right? Yeah. Or or does something that's dangerous and sort of 
you know, forbidden. You're yeah. flirting with death. Like, I mean, gosh, with all the talk, so many people that I grew up with, so many people around me are dying of drug overdoses. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like an epidemic, mm-hmm. right? And it almost yeah. makes me feel like, like, why would you ever mess with that shit? Yeah. Like when it's so dangerous, but there is something that you're compelled to do. And it's almost like flirting with death, kind of yeah. like messing around. And that third rail yeah. Kind, yeah. kind of be like an image of death too, right? We all have that susceptibility mm. to death. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I think you're really onto something with this kind of idea of like he's like a junkie kind of thing. <laughs> no, definitely. For me, I don't know if this is a personal association because of where I live and everything. But for me, I really think of like I connect like the subway mm-hmm. to heroin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because where I live, it's like uh, I, I often ride in it because it stops near my house. Like it's in it's the Market Frankfurt line in Philly. And it starts off. It's an L and then it goes underground Mm-hmm. Right, and it's the subway, and then it comes above ground again. Right, you could take it from my place to the Frankfurt Terminal, right, which is uh, further away in like kind of North Philly. And along the route there, the stop, one of the stops, like some of those later stops are Kensington, mm-hmm. which is one of like the biggest drug areas. Like you see yeah. pictures of it and things like that. It's been years since I've ever been up there, and it's really desolate. There's just you know addicts everywhere and everything but since the train runs right there right there's so many an unusual amount i think of people who are obviously like zonked out of their minds on that right and begging and stuff like that but yeah no it's just making me think of uh his rushing brain too like in a different context now Mm -hmm. if he's a a heroin user that's interesting. Yeah, and I, well, it's funny because I, I don't think um, I, I definitely I don't think of Bishop as uh, someone who would who would have very much firsthand experience with uh, oh I, these types of drugs. So it is interesting that we can we can definitely put that reading on it. I mean, it I, seems to fit very well. You I know? just I just want yeah I would just wonder who was passing through her view at that time though. Yeah, and and you know what I mean. I, yeah. I, it seems. Even like not associated, but like observational of mm-hmm. something that yeah, was yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And and then just yeah, then the idea right then of like visiting the moon is like that's like um, that's like coming out into the world to get what you need, right? Yeah. And then then withdrawing into the subway where you're actually experiencing it, and you, there's this rush, and you know the keeping being being constantly drawn to the, that susceptibility of, of death or danger or whatever that is yeah. on draft of poison even man it's it's really hard now not to uh yeah and <laughs> trying trying to get to something to like reach the moon or like yeah, get above yeah. it all yeah right beyond yeah. everything i mean like why like yeah. i mean that's one of like the temptations of of doing any kind of substance is to kind of escape yeah. Or to like see sure. something new, or like yeah. get out of your world, and you always kind of fail. You never quite get there, yeah, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, and a lot of times, like any kind of addiction is like you're chasing some kind of experience and trying to get back there. Yeah. I don't know. It does. It does. It does really work in a lot of ways. I yeah. think that yeah. really. Which yeah. is, I mean, which is probably why it, 
it holds up and captures yeah, interest. You absolutely. Know, why she picked it as one of her favorites. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah, it's uh well and I mean it's a myth. <laughs> you know, and this is what myths do. They they are yeah. uh, they adapt uh to uh the the people who need them, you know, for whatever reason. Like you can read yourself into it, you can read other other situations into it, I think. Um uh yeah. And that's that kind of mysterious sort of surreal quality. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it stands in for a lot of things, right? Yeah. It could be uh, a story about an artist. It could be a yeah. story about a, a, a junkie. It could be a religious <laughs> thing. You know, like and, I don't know. Yeah, and, and the and the the great comedy of it all is that it it was prompted by a misprint in the newspaper. <laughs> well, that's about all the time we have. Thank you for tuning in to Works Cited. For more information about the poems uh, we discussed today, please visit our website at workscitedpodcast.com. And here to play us out is Philadelphia's own The Late Greats.